Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, January 12th, 2023. It's been 3,242 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 323 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessments of an ongoing power struggle within the Russian Ministry of Defense and Army General Sergei Sorovyakin running out of time to deliver results were both accurate, with Sorovyakin demoted and Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Armed Forces, Valery Garasimov, named the new commander of the Joint Group of Troops in the Special Military Operations Zone. Second, We maintain that the ongoing strife and power struggle in the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense between rival factions will not only continue, but likely escalate. Third, we assess the ongoing information warfare between private military company or PMC Wagner Group and the Russian Ministry of Defense is a byproduct of the strife within the Kremlin. Fourth, We maintain there is an elevated risk of punitive missile and drone attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure. Fifth, we maintain that Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Sixth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Seventh, we maintain that Russian forces led by PMC Wagner Group have taken the initiative on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis, but remain largely defensive throughout the rest of Ukraine. Eighth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations, despite the slow success on the Solidar axis. Ninth, We maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023. Tenth, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is only a remote possibility. And finally, our assessment that neither belligerent will enter an operational pause over the winter was accurate. So this will be our last status update on that particular point. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. On the Svatova axis, Russian forces attempted a spoiling attack in the direction of Stelmachivka, which was unsuccessful. 
Russian forces heavily shelled Novoselivske, but made no attempts to advance on Ukrainian positions. On the Kremina axis, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported artillery and airstrikes on Ukrainian troops in Chervonopopivka, confirming that Ukrainian forces have established control of at least part of the town. Mercenaries with Wargonzo reported that Russian troops made an unsuccessful attempt to push Ukrainian forces out. The Russian MOD also reported shelling Ukrainian forces in Dibrova and fighting in Kuzmine, confirming the January 9th report by the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, that Dibrova was liberated and Ukrainian forces had advanced further northeast toward Kremina. Wargonzo reported that Russian forces, quote, tried to advance on Dibrova, further supporting the village is fully under Ukrainian control. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Ukrainian advances are slow because Russian forces have mined, quote, everything around Kremina, and Ukrainian troops are suffering casualties attempting to navigate the minefields. An extremely graphic video emerged showing a Russian soldier shooting two Ukrainian territorial guards near Kremina at point-blank range. The video is not suitable for work, and many viewers will find it disturbing. We'll talk about it a little more in the War Crimes and Human Rights section, and we do link to the video in our full situation report on Patreon. Based on these reports, we moved the line of conflict closer to Kremina and moved no man's land in the Kremina salient to the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border using terrain analysis. On the Lysychansk axis, Russian sources reported another failed attack on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. A Ukrainian source reported a failed attempt to advance into Zolotarivka, which remains under Russian control. Ooh, okay, we have some breaking news for you. Ukrainian forces have entered Kremina. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian troops successfully defended positions held in Kremina, so we now consider the critical Russian defensive point as contested. And the Russian MOD is going to have to make some significant manpower decisions in the coming days. In northeast Donetsk, for the purposes of reporting and analysis, we are changing the axis for the region from Spirne to Vesele to the Siversk axis which better represents the geographical area where fighting is occurring. Don't read into it too far, this change does not indicate that there is a new Russian offensive on Siversk, okay? So anyway, on the Siversk axis, Russian forces attempted to advance on Spirne without success, and fighting continued in Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk. On the Soledar axis, PMC Wagner and or Russian VDV, or airborne forces, attempted to advance on Vesele from Yakovlivka and were also unsuccessful. A school in the liberated city of Liman was hit by a Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack. The building was unoccupied during the overnight strike. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on Rozdolivka launched from Russian-occupied Yakovlivka. Claims made by PMC Wagner on January 10th that Solidar was captured and was achieved without the support of Russian forces were false on both counts. The Russian MOD dismissed PMC Wagner's claims, reporting that fighting was ongoing in the city's center, that Ukrainian forces were not surrounded, and that Russian troops were engaged in battle. 
At the time of recording, Yevgeny Prigozhin had doubled down, repeating the claim that Solidar was under the full control of PMC Wagner, adding it was time to, quote, clear the mines. Those would be the salt mines, which have over 200 kilometers of tunnels. It's kind of like asking your kid if they've finished their project for school, and they say, oh yeah, I've just got one more thing to do. It's, it's not just one more thing. Okay, some assessment. That doesn't sound like under control. And PMC Wagner has yet to provide any surface videos showing control of key areas in western or central Solidar. In a series of graphic pictures showing dead Ukrainian soldiers shared by PMC Wagner's social media channels, careful framing was done to prevent geolocation, making it impossible to verify the images. The photos, which are linked in our full situation report, as are most photos and videos we reference, are not suitable for work, and many will find them disturbing. Multiple sources from Russia and Ukraine, including our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and failed Mobik Igor Girkin-Strelkov, reported continued fighting for control of Solidar, even after Prigozhin's second claim. Sergeant Oleksandr Porebiski of the Ukrainian 46th Air Mobile Brigade specifically addressed the use of picture reports by PMC Wagner to create propaganda, saying, quote, It is a bit funny to watch the enemy's statements, because it happens that a bunch of Wagnerites will run in, infiltrate into some building in the industrial zone, and while we have not yet had time to smoke them out, we'll record a video. And the next day, we will find out they are 200, end quote. Quick sidebar for a vocabulary word, 200 is the cargo code for a corpse used by the Russian MOD. United States Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also waded into the debate, telling reporters at the U.S.-Japan Security Consultative Committee in Washington, D.C., quote, Let me begin with the question you asked on Solidar, and whether or not it's fallen to the Russians. At this point, we can't corroborate that reporting, end quote adding that the situation is, quote, very dynamic and has, quote, gone back and forth a number of times, end quote. A short video was circulated on Twitter channels showing a squad of PMC Wagner mercenaries moving in the open on the western edge of Solidar. The full-length video, which requires Telegram to view, shows that the Wagnerites did not return to base. Ukrainian artillery was brutally accurate, on multiple groups of mercenaries attempting to move through the city following the World War II Zhukov doctrine of sending poorly trained and equipped light infantry forward to determine if it is safe for more experienced troops to advance. The Ukrainian military claimed that a, quote, missile attack on Russian troops in Solidar killed over a hundred. While some on social media were attributing the strike to a Tachka U short-range ballistic missile, it is more likely the strike was made by M30A1 rockets fired by HIMARS, specifically designed to blanket up to 1.3 square kilometers with 182,000 tungsten BBs, depending on the altitude of the burst. Some assessment here. There is a significant fog of war obscuring the situation in Solidar, with house-to-house -house fighting between squad-sized units trading control of city blocks, buildings, and sometimes rooms within the same home. In our assessment, Solidar remains contested, with 20 to 50 percent of the city a no-man's land at any given moment. I would like to remind you that the situation is very dynamic, 
and Ukrainian forces are struggling to maintain defensive positions in the western area of the settlement. Multiple sources reported fighting, quote, near Krasnohora. Okay, in our assessment, other war maps are attributing too much territorial control here to Russian forces, with open fields on the eastern approach. I mean, it is highly improbable that PMZ Wagner and Russian VDV forces are laying on the frozen ground in the open to maintain positions adjacent to the town. On the Bakhmut axis, the Russian MOD claimed that the village of Pitkharodne was captured. Once again, we are skeptical of the single-source claim after repeated false capture claims by other channels. We advanced the line of conflict past the M3, or E40, and T1302 highway interchange and into the settlement using terrain analysis, and we've coded the village as contested. The fighting continued on the eastern edges of Bakhmut and in Opitne, with no change in the situation. South of Bakhmut, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting near Klishivka. There is confusing information about Mayorsk with the GSAFU reporting Ukrainian forces are successfully defending their positions near the rail station and customs offices, while a video released by the Scala Intelligence Battalion shows them shelling a tree line and Russian defensive position just north of Mayorsk. The video is from January 10th, so it is possible this was part of an offensive operation to retake positions in the settlement. In southwest Donetsk on the Avdiivka axis, Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, continued attempts to advance into Vodyana, Pervomaiske, and the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske without success. On the Marinka axis, DNR separatists attempted to advance on Krasnohorivka without success, while fighting continued in the center of Marinka. Russian social media channels recycled a video we analyzed and geolocated on December 27, 2022, claiming the tank was operating in Marinka yesterday. Guys, come on. On the Volodar axis, the GSAFU and Russian MOD reported fighting around Prechestivka. Ukrainian sources claimed they successfully defended the town, and Russian forces returned to their defensive positions. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, DNR officials have made it clear that the trolley service, which was promised to be restored in May 2022, is not coming back. Pictures emerged of intact trolley tracks removed from the city streets, and no effort has been made to restore the trolley barn. Russian officials have also ordered all doctors, teachers, police officers, and civil servants in Mariupol to obtain Russian passports or face termination from their jobs. Men who receive Russian passports would become eligible for mobilization or conscription under Russian law. A Russian passport is also required to operate or open a business in the occupied city. Russian-occupied Kholivka was shelled, with no injuries reported. Russian Mir is on display in occupied Donetsk, with water and heat failing in Lakivka and Donetsk City due to temperatures dropping to negative 20 degrees Celsius. That's negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit, U.S. Americans. In Makievka, water mains failed from the cold, and residents couldn't contact authorities to get service. While in Donetsk, water flooded the streets and basements before freezing into ice sculptures. In the Voroshilovsky district of Donetsk, central heating lines ruptured after freezing. 
the prosecutor general of the DNR, Andriy Alexandrovich Spivak, was dismissed by the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin. A replacement was not named, and there was no reason given for the termination. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro, with Russian forces conducting 63 fire missions on free Ukraine, wounding five. There were 24 artillery strikes in the city of Kherson alone, targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. A video showed that the city was shelled with thermite munitions. Kherson State University was shelled, breaking windows from the concussion and causing light damage to the campus. A hospital was also shelled, causing damage to the neonatal ward and outpatient clinic. One nurse was lightly wounded. The Kherson suburbs of Antonivka and Chornobaivka were also attacked. Russian sources reported that occupied Skadovsk was attacked by rockets fired by HIMARS, but did not provide any additional details. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi continued shuttle diplomacy between Moscow and Kyiv to establish a demilitarized zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and have the Russian military withdraw from the facility. During an interview on the Italian TV channel Rai, Grossi said, quote, Our duty is to secure the plant. The establishment of a permanent group of observers is the first concrete and tangible result of our efforts, but we cannot stop. The main thing is to protect the plant's safety. End quote. He expressed continued optimism that a deal can be reached, saying an agreement is not, quote, impossible. Ukrainian officials reported that 1,500 Energoatom employees have refused to sign contracts with Russian state nuclear power plant operator Rosatom and have been barred from entering the facility. Rosatom is reportedly attempting to recruit employees from Russia. They mean the pre-2014 Russia, not the illegally annexed Russia, as part of a genocidal nationalization effort to replace the Ukrainian staff and families. All six reactors at ZNPP remain in a shutdown state and are receiving power from a 750-kilovolt line and a 300-kilovolt line. The city of Zaporizhia was attacked by S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack, damaging homes. There was no information about casualties. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitopol, reported that the morgue in the occupied city is beyond capacity with the bodies of Russian soldiers, and that occupation officials built a temporary morgue at a school in Velika Biloserka and have started creating mass graves for dead Mobiks. We can't verify the report, but our team will monitor satellite images for mass grave activity. Otherwise, Russia and Ukraine exchanged sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapole to Orehiv to Sherbaki. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, 
reported that three Kilo-class submarines of the Black Sea Fleet were on patrol, capable of launching up to 12-caliber cruise missiles. In occupied Sevastopol, officials extended the terrorism alert to January 26th. Russian forces continued with punitive strikes on Ochakiv and Kutsurub in Mykolaiv, striking both coastal towns with grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. Kutsurub was hit over 40 times. In north and northeast Ukraine, Russian forces continue to occupy approximately 1.3% of the Kharkiv Oblast, with 28 settlements still under their control. The GSAFU reported that Russian troops attacked Ukrainian positions in Khyanikivka and were unsuccessful. Based on the information, we made a small change to the map, moving the no-man's land further east. On the Russian front, Russian sources claimed that the towns of Shebikino and Starikhutor in the Bilgorod Federal District were shelled. Russian officials announced that the Kerch Bridge is open to all car and bus traffic, but remains closed to truck traffic which must use alternative routes for the Kerch Strait Ferry. Yes, we know that Russian officials made the same claim in November, early December, late December, and then again yesterday. We live in the Twilight Zone. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. I'm going to need someone to change the sign because we are back to zero days since someone in the Russian government threatened nuclear war. So that's fun. On Russia 1, Vladimir Solovyov and his panelists, which included a state Duma deputy, called for using nuclear weapons on France. The reason for annihilating France? Because of the January 4th announcement by President Emmanuel Macron that his nation would provide Ukraine with AMX-10RC armored scout vehicles equipped with a tank-destroying 105mm main gun. Retired General Jérôme Pellistrandi, director of National Defense Magazine, speculated between 30 to 40 of the wheeled tank destroyers could be supplied to Ukraine in the coming weeks. On January 6th, while we were on break... The United States Department of Defense announced a $3.07 billion military aid package to Ukraine. The package included 50 Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicles, or IFVs, 100 M113 Armored Personnel Carriers, or APCs, 55 Mine Resistant Ambush Protection Vehicles, or MRAPs, 138 High Mobility Multipurpose Wheeled Vehicles, or Humvees, 1855mm self-propelled howitzers with 18 ammunition support vehicles, 36 towed 105mm howitzers, and other equipment. The United States has provided $24.9 billion in direct military aid to Ukraine since 2014, and $24.2 billion since February 24, 2022. The Bradley IFV may already be in Europe, and reportedly will be in-country within, quote, the next few weeks. While 50 vehicles is a token number that would support a small battalion, the U.S. Department of Defense has committed to training 500 Ukrainian soldiers in the operation of Bradley's per month, indicating a lot more of the IFVs are on the way. The United States has over 6,700 Bradleys in inventory. Fun fact, they were initially designed during the end of the Cold War. So, full circle. On Wednesday, during a visit to Lviv, 
Polish President Andrzej Duda announced that his nation was sending a, quote, company of German-built Leopard 2 main battle tanks, or MBTs, to Ukraine. This would represent 14 tanks following NATO standards. Hours earlier, the Finnish publication Ulle reported that Helsinki was considering sending Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and was monitoring the geopolitical situation. Shortly after Duda's announcement, which was hailed as a breakthrough in Ukraine's quest to receive modern heavy weapons up to NATO standards, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz appeared to have sunk the transfer. Berlin stated that they would not grant permission to Poland or Finland to transfer Leopard 2 MBTs to Ukraine. Even if the United Kingdom provided Challenger 2 MBTs, Germany would not release the heavy armor to Ukraine. Schultz appears to have moved the goalposts, now stating that Germany will release Leopard 2 MBTs only if the United States provides M1A1 Abrams MBTs. Ukrainian officials initially expressed no interest in the M1A1 Abrams, citing its over 60-ton weight and girth as too heavy and too wide for Ukrainian infrastructure. The United States has also said that the M1A1 would be less than ideal for Ukraine due to its appetite for fuel and the complexity of its turbine engine system. The lighter, diesel-engine-powered Leopard 2 is considered ideal for the Ukrainian battlefield. While incredibly frustrating, Germany has committed to providing Martyr IFVs in concert with the United States Bradley IFVs. In the beginning of January, at least one British national was captured by PMC Wagner on the solidar bakhmut mayorsk axis. On January 9th, the British Foreign Service reported that Christopher Perry and Andrew Bagshaw, who were aid worker volunteers, were missing. PMC Wagner released pictures of their passports and other documents on social media, with Prigozhin reporting the pair was killed. In a follow-up post, Prigozhin claimed that Perry was armed and a legitimate military target because he was operating as an illegal combatant. At the time of recording, the British government had not yet made a statement. Speaking of combatants, let's talk about Russian mobilization. In a sign of looming additional mobilization, multiple sources reported that the Russian Federation had closed the border to men who are liable for military service that fall into categories A, B, and C. Category A means healthy enough for military duty, B indicates a person can perform limited service due to health issues, while C is exempt from conscription but could be mobilized under martial law or decree. In another sign of looming additional mobilization, a member of the State Duma Defense Committee, Lieutenant General Viktor Sobolev, called for everyone under 30 years old to receive military training and to be enlisted in a, quote, mobilization reserve. General Sobolev cited concerns over a NATO attack as the reason for what could only be described as total mobilization. Russian soldiers from the Republic of Bashkortostan took to social media to complain that they were not allowed to leave Ukraine despite completing their military contracts. The Russian soldiers are being held at the Russian Russian border in occupied Luhansk. Because what didn't they annex it? I feel like this. I feel like there was some annexation thing that happened. But don't worry, because in a new statement, Russian President Putin promised to solve all the problems for the Mobiks, conscripts, and troops fighting in Ukraine. 
and this time he maybe even means it a little. Or he might not. That is also possible. In November, Mobik Alexander Leshkov was recorded during a military inspection at Military Park, committing insubordination against Russian Lieutenant Colonel Denis Masanov. Masanov reported that Leshkov blew cigarette smoke into his face, used foul language to complain about the quality of training and equipment, and, when he was suspended from service, punched Masanov in the chest. In a Russian court, Leshkov was sentenced to five and a half years in a, quote, strict regime colony for, quote, beating an officer. PMC Wagner's social media channels mocked the sentencing, pointing out that Leshkov could join a penal unit, receive better equipment, training, and pay, and get a full pardon in six months. Leshkov's concerns were not unwarranted. Russian Mobics of the 392nd Regiment appealed to President Putin to intervene after they were sent to, quote, prepared defensive positions, and the prepared defense was a simple, unreinforced earthen trench with a thick ice floor. The squad of Mobics claimed they would likely freeze to death in the position and were blackmailed into taking up the position after their commander withheld medical supplies, food, and drinking water. When they complained to their commander about the condition of the so-called prepared defenses, they were told that the money to build improvements had run out. On the subject of cold temperatures and ice, someone is not learning their lesson. Almost a year ago, Russian military vehicles equipped with cheap Chinese tires suffered catastrophic losses in the opening days of Russia's failed advance on Kyiv, Cherniev, Sumy, and Kharkiv. Well, now in Yakutsk, Russia, where temperatures are a balmy negative 35 degrees Celsius, that's negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit, U.S. Americans, Tires on commercial and military vehicles are, once again, failing. Sava Mikhailov, a member of the Yakutia government who volunteered for the special military operation in January 2023, never made it to Ukraine. Mikhailov is in a Moscow jail, accused of raping a Korean woman. Russia Today conflict journalist Valentin Gorshinin claimed that two drunk Chechen soldiers threatened to kill him in an altercation in downtown Moscow. After reporting the incident to the police, Gorshinin ended up in a Moscow jail cell. It is entirely unclear what his charges are. Do you remember a soldier in the 1st Army Corps of the DNR who filmed himself in a firefight yelling at Ukrainian troops and almost eating a rocket-propelled grenade? If not, the video we link to in our full situation report, which some may find disturbing, I do mean the video, not the situation report, will almost certainly jog your memory. Going by the call sign Mustafa, the DNR separatist was killed in Piski on December 31st. On Russia 1, Olga Skabeyeva went full Orwell in rewriting Russian history, declaring, quote, anyone who cooperated with Nazi Germany cannot be a hero. End quote. So let's pause for a quick history lesson, because according to Skabeva, Joseph Stalin is no hero, given his allyship with Nazi Germany after the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939. The agreement included a 10-year non-aggression clause and how the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany would divide Central Europe. Stalin even toasted the signing of the agreement in August 1939 with Hitler's photographer Heinrich Hoffmann. 
On September 16, 1939, Soviet forces invaded Poland from the east to support the Nazi attack that started on September 1st. Soviet troops executed thousands of Polish military officers and government officials with such violence that it horrified Nazi officials. Soviet troops also removed 1.3 million Poles, many of them Jews, into closed communities in Siberia. As German forces advanced across Europe in 1940 and 1941, French and British leaders couldn't understand where Germany was getting its supply of coal and fuel to run its air force, navy, army, and railroads. Well, Stalin supplied the Third Reich with Russian coal and Ural's oil, supporting the Nazi war machine. Stalin was so confident in his pact with Hitler that he did not believe the initial reports when Germany broke the pact on June 22, 1941. Even after repeated warnings from the British, Chinese, United States, and his own intelligence service. The Kremlin has been actively rehabilitating Stalin's history since 2011 and framing his leadership as an example to follow to make Russia great again. No, but seriously, that isn't a swipe at former U.S. President Donald Trump. A core pillar of the Kremlin's authoritarianism is attempting to return to so-called greatness, which never existed in the first place. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A video showing a Russian soldier shooting two Ukrainian territorial guards at point-blank range has raised questions about what uniform and identification patches the Russian soldier was wearing. In a brief confrontation, the two Ukrainians, one already wounded, repeatedly scream that they are, quote, friendlies, with one adding, quote, you are on our side, end quote. After the two are shot, the Russian soldier briefly enters their foxhole before advancing into the ongoing firefight. In geopolitical news, European Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans told the German news outlet Deutsche Welle that Ukraine will never become a member of the European Union as long as Russian troops remain in the nation's territory. Timmermans went on to state that he believed Ukraine was fighting to be, quote, victorious, sovereign, independent, and free, end quote. He also stated that the EU should support Ukraine in achieving that goal. Do you mean like your government releasing Leopard 2 MBTs to Ukraine? Just asking for a friend. After reports emerged that Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro was working to normalize relations with the United States, Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi warned against it. In a meeting with the new ambassador of Venezuela to Tehran on Sunday, Raisi claimed that the Americans want closer ties with Venezuela due to the country's need for energy resources. Raisi seemed to miss several points while making his statement. First, the Venezuelan oil industry has completely crumbled and is incapable of significantly increasing capacity. Second, with the Russian Federation slowly going broke, Russian foreign aid and investment to nations like Venezuela is drying up. Maduro is counting on the United States' investment after ending normal relations in 2019. 
The Financial Times reported that Beijing is re-evaluating the benefits of its tight relationship with Moscow, with a growing belief that Russia will lose the war in Ukraine and be left a, quote, minor power, with diminished economic and diplomatic pull on the world stage. In economic news, the ruble rebounded after the start of the week with an exchange rate of 70 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices were mixed, with WTI crude falling to $78 a barrel and Brent increasing to $84. Russian Ural's crude fell to $53 a barrel, while the unofficial price was discounted to as low as $38 a barrel. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market rose due to widespread extreme winter weather, reaching $2.47 a gallon, or $0.65 a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures continue to decline to below 2022 levels, dropping to €68 per megawatt hour for February 2023 delivery and €69 for March. Chicago SRW wheat futures were trading at $7.39 a bushel for March 2023 delivery, lower than a year ago. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.